Hey, welcome to The Scrum, WGBH's politics podcast. I'm Adam Riley. If you're listening to this pod, you know that right now the poll numbers for the president, Donald Trump, look bad. And you also know the president says those bad poll numbers are bogus. But our guest, Steve Kazella, the president of the Mass Inc. polling group and the host of our peer political podcast, The Horse Race, says the comparison of 2020 to 2016, which Trump relies on to make his argument about poll bogosity, doesn't really hold up. Before we get to Steve, though, Peter Kadzis, I have got to get your take on this very sharp back and forth between Boston Mayor Marty Walsh and City Councilor Michelle Wu that happened just a few hours ago. In case anyone missed it, Wu was on our midday show, Boston Public Radio, and she was criticizing Boston's new racial equity fund. She says it gives too much power to the mayor and competes directly with a similar fund operated by Boston residents of color. Those are arguments she first made in the Boston Globe. The mayor then came on after her, and I think without mentioning Wu by name, panned her at some length, saying, among other things, she has no idea what she's talking about. In response, Wu emailed a statement saying, let's be clear, I work for the people of Boston, not the mayor. So what is your take on this unexpected bit of midsummer political drama? Well, the 2021 mayoral election has officially begun. And I think um, both the mayor and the councilor have both drawn a little bit of blood. It's very early for this level of uh, vituperation to surface in a mayoral race. And I have a hard time concluding that it's not personal. I'll tell you, though, in, in, it, here we are talking, you know, as the stories are going up online and other people like me who read the Dead Tree version of the newspaper will be going over this again in the morning. I think it's premature to see the mayor's race as one exclusively between incumbent Marty Walsh and challenger uh, counselor-at-large Michelle Wu. Andrea Campbell could factor into this. Um, Many, many people say that she too was thinking of running for mayor. Let me be high-minded, and I'll talk about Campbell for a minute, and rise above the battle between Walsh and Wu. Campbell has a very interesting background. You know, her parents died when she was young. She was raised by an aunt and uncle. She had a, a, a brother who sadly died while in police custody. Um, she went to Boston Latin. She went to Princeton. She went to UCLA. She served in the Deval Patrick administration, so she has a potentially very powerful sponsor in ex-Governor Patrick. She has a potential appeal that is very, very powerful. Many years ago, after Kevin White had left office, he was still teaching at BU, I ran into Kevin White on Charles Street, and we spent... I don't know, probably an hour just shooting the breeze about politics and life. Um, I was surprised he gave me so much time. Of course, he probably didn't have anything much better to do. (laughs) But I remember him talking about the appeal in ethnic and racial communities for um, 
candidates who were seen as doing better than their parents or doing better than the voters. You know, it's what political scientists and sociologists call a middle-class aspirations. Now, Andrea Campbell in the black community is very much an example of middle-class aspirations. You know, in effect, uh, you know, a working-class girl who turns into a professional woman. Um, by the way, Michelle Wu also has a very appealing background. Um, Harvard and Harvard Law, you know, took care of her mother in time times of stress. Marty Walsh has a, a compelling personal narrative, um, you know, this up from addiction. These are all real stories. But I'm focusing on Campbell because no one has really figured her into the, you know, the great bout of whispering and conspiring and speculation that's going on as to who, if anyone, will challenge Marty Walsh. Then there's also the chance that um, Marty Walsh, if Joe Biden is elected, could end up in Washington, D.C., or overseas in, a, in an ambassadorship, say, to Ireland or something. This is all speculation. But today, we saw what Boston politics can be like at what I consider its best, because I'm one of the slugs in the press who revel in it when public figures really say what's on their mind. And I think this is as close as we're going to get for a long time to understand what Marty thinks of Michelle and what Michelle thinks of Marty. All right. On to our main event, a conversation with pollster Steve Kazella about why, when it comes to presidential polling, 2020 is not 2016. By way of context, the president said recently and has been saying for a while now that it pretty much is. I think we have really good poll numbers. Uh, they're not suppression polls, they're real polls. We won a race where it was the same thing, 2016. We had polls that were fake. Uh, I think we're doing very well in the polls, and I think you have a, a silent majority, the likes of which this country has never seen before. Here's why Steve Cazella says the president is wrong. And by the way, make sure to listen to the end of this one. After we talk polling, we get Steve's take on what it's like to watch the current historical moment as a military veteran, which includes a nugget of wisdom from his grandmother you honestly won't want to miss. A lot of our listeners will know what a debacle 2016 was for political journalism, for pollsters, but I'm just hoping you can provide a recap. Yeah, 2016 was a, a night where I think we all went into Election Day thinking one thing was going to happen based on how polls were read and interpreted and came obviously away by sort of the middle of the night, uh, middle of the evening with a clear understanding that that, that was not the way things that were not the way things were going. Um, there were a bunch of reasons for that. Some of them have been well covered. And I think uh, others are perhaps more well understood in polling communities than they are by the general public. Um, one of the things that really, I think, threw people off was the emphasis that 2016 placed on political forecasting. Um, so not just actually what the polls said, but then people who would take them, roll them together and use them to create forecasts of what they what was going to happen. Um, so then these forecasts would be based on 
electoral college math, which basically meant that the forecasts were based on polls in just a few states. So even though the national polls pretty much hit the nail on the head, they showed Clinton with a small lead of a few points, and that's where she ended up, the state polls in these key states were not particularly accurate and led the forecasters then to uh, apply these very high probabilities to um, the likelihood of a Clinton win based only on the polls in these specific states. Um, and there were reasons which um, we can go over, if you'd like, as far as how pollsters assessed that the polls in those states went wrong. And some of them actually do have to do with why 2020 might is probably different than 2016. If they are connected, yeah, give us a, a layperson's non-pollsters overview of, of some of what didn't go right in individual state polls. Yeah, so there were a couple kind of structural things that I think have changed. One is just that there was more emphasis on national polling and relatively less emphasis on state polling in 2016. Um, And that was one of the things that pollsters and national media outlets came away with, realizing, you know, we should be spending more time and more resources on these states, which really make the difference. So you see, for instance, that Uh, The New York Times, I saw a set from CNBC, I'm seeing, you know, Monmouth University and others polling in states, uh, much more so than than happened in 2016. So, you know, whereas in 2016, you had, you know, whatever local media could cobble together, um, which was not always a lot in some of the in some of the really key states. And that's what forecasters were really relying on. Now you've got the highest quality pollsters that there are, you know, lessening the amount of national polling that they're doing and increasing the amount of focus that they're placing on Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Florida, et cetera. But technically, the things that that have changed is that pollsters also in 2016 were less likely to account for the differences in education, um, which in the past, you know, looking back decades, it wasn't you didn't need as much to worry about what the educational breakdown of your sample was. Um, because there wasn't a huge, as huge a difference at, in terms of uh, how people with college degrees voted versus how people without college degrees voted. So even if your sample, for instance, had too many people with college degrees, it wasn't going to skew hugely Democrat. Now, particularly over the last couple cycles, if you're white and you have a college degree, you are way more likely to say that you're going to vote for a Democrat than if you're white and do not have a college degree. Um, White voters without college degrees are some of Trump's strongest supporters, um, you know, in terms of what the polling shows, Um, whereas white voters with college degrees are much more likely to say they're Democrat. So the implication of that, then, is if you just call whoever answers the phone and you don't take into account the fact that people with lower levels of education are less likely to participate in polls, you'll end up with a sample that that is too far, too far to the left, too democratic. And that was a big thing that happened in 2016 and an adjustment that lots of pollsters have made since that time. So let me ask you, I know that speaking personally, even though we've kind of gotten used to it, there has been a little bit of a psychological toll that's come from having the president of the United States and the fans of the president of the United States going on for the past four years about how uh, those of us who work as journalists are fake news and the enemy of the people. The assessment of pollsters on the right does not seem to me to have been much kinder. I mean, I've seen you on Twitter, Steve, pushing back against the president's 
apparently groundless tweets calling out polls that he doesn't like that show him in trouble. Before we talk about 2020 and what's going to happen or what's likely to happen, have you been demoralized by the sort of rhetoric coming from the president and a big chunk of the country about your profession? I mean, I think I feel probably in some ways similar to to how journalists feel about it in the sense that I believe, and the reason that I love what I do is that I believe that bringing the public's voice to the table and elevating public opinion into the public realm and into public policy discussions is hugely important in that it pushes back against powerful interests who may, for instance, think that it would serve them if the public thought a certain thing. Um, And the only way to show that the public does not think that thing is if you can conduct a good poll and ask them. Um, So I think it it just is a very important part of um, what what uh, someone on Twitter, uh, Liam Kerr, called the civic infrastructure, um, the the ability to to know what the public thinks and the ability to kind of roll it all up together and present it to to powerful people and powerful interests and you know elected officials and so forth. So, I think that that I still think it's just as important as it was, but. It does. It is a bummer to, that you know it's become that even that question whether polls are useful, whether journalism is a good thing, whether journalists are good people, has become a political you know an object of partisan disagreement. That is, I think, a real bummer. Um, but it doesn't you know it doesn't change our commitment to it. It's just a, it's just something that I I don't think really serves any particularly positive purpose. Steve, what would you say to someone who said? to you that intellectually they know Trump is in big trouble, but emotionally they can't quite bring themselves to see him being defeated because of the surprise nature of his victory. Yeah, I think that there is still a good deal of that sort of caution, which is warranted, um, whether it's brought about by people's emotional uh, hangover from 2016 or just their uh, hard-nosed analytical assessment of how elections go. I think that there is that caution that's warranted in our um, anytime we would try to project what's going to happen in November when it's only July. Um, the polls right now certainly show a larger lead than for Biden than any than certainly than Clinton had and larger than a lot of elections have been recently. So it would take a bigger polling error this year than happened in 2016 by a lot in order for this a similar kind of surprise to happen. That would be if the election were right now, which, of course, would surprise many people if it was. But, you know, it does show that this is not this is not kind of the same place that Clinton was. Biden is not in the same place that Clinton was. He's considerably further ahead than than Clinton was. So what would have to happen really for that kind of polling error to to kind of take us by surprise again is that things would have to shift. We'd have to see a movement towards Trump and it'd have to get down in kind of the three or four point range. That that could bring us into a range where specific electoral college outcomes could come into play, where polling errors in specific states could come into play. But there's just not there's no way if Biden is up eight or nine or 10 points nationally that an electoral college surprise, you know, could could put him over the top. I mean, the electoral college is screwed up and not a very good way to, I think, divine the will of uh, of our 
uh, of the national electorate. But, you know, it, it's not that screwed up if Biden holds on to this size of a lead at this point. Yeah, to, just to interject, I was really struck by um, a piece in The Economist which showed Biden's lead over Trump as of July 1st in the key swing states versus Hillary Clinton's lead over Trump at the same time. And with the exception of one or two states, Biden was commandingly ahead of where Hillary was. You know, if you could take off your pollster hat, I'm not saying throw it out the window, but what might Biden do or not do that would interrupt his momentum at the moment? Yeah, I think the fundamental issue really is what voters see Trump doing. You know, the issue that overwhelmingly exceeds any other issue right now, of course, is coronavirus. And voters, by and large, don't think that Trump is doing a good job on it. You know, it's not the economy, it's stupid, so to speak, you know, to borrow Clinton's, to bring Clinton's uh, famous phrase back, it's coronavirus. And you, you can't fool people that hundreds of thousands of deaths and, you know, spiking cases are uh, something that that is just bad messaging and you just need to change your campaign around. You know, that's the thing that's on people's minds. We're going to and we're going to continue, I think, to see that play out throughout the summer. We're going to continue to get this drumbeat of uh, schools and what they're doing and how many of them aren't going to be open. We're going to see, you know, more states, I think, will have to impose restrictions. You know, so how that how that kind of works itself through to November, I think, is just a big thing. Um, there, there's I don't think any really recent parallel as far as the dominance of a, of a specific issue as far as, you know, what Trump is not doing and the issue that really is number one on so many people's minds. Yeah, my own view is that the really only similarity between 2016 and 2020 is that, you know, people who voted for Trump in 2016 were voting against Hillary. People who were going to vote for Biden or many of them are voting against Trump. But, but that brings me to the economy, which is one of those common denominator issues that historians, political scientists, pollsters often say is a, a really key factor. Now, I, I find it interesting and not particularly surprising that in, in many of the polls, um, even polls where Trump scores poorly, he still scores relatively well for how he handles the economy. Now, as you pointed out before, we're in July and the election's in November. Could you address what role you think the, the nation's economic situation is going to play in 2020? That's where I think the length of time between now and the election could could potentially change the fortunes of the candidates. I mean, four months is enough time if, if we actually did things right to really crush the curve and really, you know, reopen again the way that a lot of countries around the world have done. But there's no particular evidence that we're going to be able to do that. You know, we haven't shown as a country, really, our ability to, to pull together and do the things that need to be done to, you know, crush the virus and reopen the economy. 
I think the most, one of the most compelling charts I've seen recently, and I wish I could remember who, who tweeted it out, but their basic point was that the pandemic and the economy are one and the same. When you look at cases moving and you look at the economic activity, they just move in very close tandem. It's hard to decouple, in this case, the economy from, from the pandemic. If we were somehow to do what we needed to do, if we were to reduce the number of cases and reopen large sections of the economy, you could see a lot of economic growth, I would think, between now and November. But there's just not the, it doesn't seem like there's the will, the unity, the sense of common purpose to, to do what is just so clear that needs to be done. Steve, as you talk about the seeming lack of national commitment or unity of purpose in this really frightening moment that we're currently in. I have to ask you what it's like to watch things playing out the way they are right now as someone who is a military veteran. Um, there aren't a ton of people in the world of, uh, I guess, journalism and polling, political journalism and polling, broadly speaking, that I know of that have your particular perspective. Can you talk about what it's like to watch this with the background that you have? Yeah, I think the the most, the best comment I've heard from a veteran about what we're going through right now actually came from my grandmother, who, um, God bless her, she just turned 99 years old, and she was a, a code girl in World War II. Um, code girl, the term, of course, from the the book that recently came out about the um, the women who joined the armed forces to to basically help our nation break the codes of um, the German and Japanese armies, I asked her basically, "Do you think we could win World War II again as a country?" And she she paused for a long time and then then said, "I don't know," but a lot of people didn't know back then either whether we could do it. So to me, I feel like we're. It, so much feels uncertain right now. And I really, there's a lot of times when I don't know if we can do this, whatever, this being the challenge of facing down the kinds of fractious partisanship that seems to be ripping society apart and facing down the pandemic that seems like it's digging into every wound that, the, that America has. But I do take some comfort in the, the fact that she said that about what was happening back then. Um, because we all, I think, look back and think, well, of course they won. Of course we won. We knew that we could. We just had to, you know, do what we all now know we did. But just knowing that it was uncertain even back then, I think, was was quite powerful. I will also say that it it is a bummer to watch a lot of the stuff that's happening right now. Um, and I think that for me, uh, for me personally, what what would mean the most whenever I hear, whenever there's celebrations for military things or people thanking veterans is if people would take the time to do what they think would make the country a better place. That's the thing that I think would mean more than all of the discounts that veterans get and all of the preferential boarding on airlines and the little perks that, that kind of come along with being a veteran. More than that, if people would vote if they would volunteer, if they would pick up trash in the neighborhood, if they would, you know, take good care of their their area and their their neighborhood and their, the people that are around them, and um, you know, take the time to learn the issues. Those things, I think, would would just go so much further toward building our national pride than kind of a disembodied focus on thanking the military. I'm not a veteran, but I, I had 
sort of an interesting flashback early on in the pandemic when it was really raging in New York City. And many of us, and I lived in New York for seven years, was just sort of horrified and aghast at what I saw happening. And it happened, I was watching one of the cable, probably MSNBC, and they were at a hospital in the Bronx and they had two or three nurses standing outside asking, you know, for PPE equipment. And they were being very polite and very professional, but in effect, they were pleading for the tools they needed to save people's lives. And something clicked inside me, and I immediately, like, floated back to um, my teenage years when I was sitting with my family watching America land the first man on the moon. And it was a, I don't know how to describe the moment. I mean, it was a moment of clarity, it was depressing, but it was like, what happened? What's happened in my lifetime? And, you know, I'm personalizing this, but, you know, between being a teenager and watching the United States put men on the moon and, you know, being a 67-year-old father of three, watching nurses in New York City pleading for equipment to treat the, the ill and the dying. I guess that's not a question. That's... No, it's not a question, but it's a really sobering reflection. I mean, the, 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 and this, you know, I think pales compared to what the two of you have just said, but one thing I've thought a lot about in this period is what it felt like at the end of the Cold War when, you know, I remember my dad coming down and, you know, waking me up in the morning because I was a lazy teenager, a senior in high school, I guess, and giving me kind of daily updates on what was happening. Uh, you know, the wall coming down, um, various other developments. I, I think he would have been telling me when uh, there was the Tiananmen Square protest. Hopefully I'm not getting that wrong. But it was this moment where, as an American, it felt like we had been on the right side of history and the world was now shaking out in the way that it was supposed to. And I recognize in retrospect, you know, that viewpoint glossed over a lot of problematic stuff that had transpired in the preceding decades and was still going on. But still, it felt like things like the arc of history was, in fact, bending toward justice. And it's just so different from the moment that we're in right now, uh, where it seems like things are headed the wrong way. Uh, so there's my very small contribution. But Peter, I, I know the sort of thing you're talking about. Yeah, actually, Adam, that prompted a question for me to Steve. And um, I think this is the first time I've uttered the possibility in a public forum. If Biden were to win, or some people would say, when Biden wins. My particular take is that his victory, even if it's strong, he's going to take office in a very fragile situation. And I'm asking you now to sort of draw on your political instincts, although clearly informed by your work as a pollster. 
If you could project forward, am I wrong to think that he's going to be taking office at a fragile time, or should I be more optimistic? Yeah, I mean, I think before I remove my pollster hat, I would say that I that um, of course we still need to be cognizant of the possibility that that things that he doesn't win, and you know we're still months out, as we've said many times now, just to offer that that required caveat. <laughs> but yes, I would agree with with the second part of what you said um, that that he would take office in a very fragile and fractious time. I mean, and I think you can look at a whole bunch of different numbers and a whole bunch of different dynamics that that make that make that case the polarization is not going away you know that's been something that's been happening over the course of decades um, we see it among voters we see it among elected officials um, we see it geographically now where you know people are much less likely to live um, in towns that are close in purple towns it's you have deep red towns you have deep blue towns um, so uh, polarization kind of happens even at the geographic, even at the neighborhood level. Um, so I think that that's something that is not not necessarily really uh, likely to change with with one election. Um, then you can also look at things like confidence in institutions that has also been in longer term and recently very sharp decline where you have different institutions that either the broader public has lost faith or members of one particular party have lost faith. You know, we talked about the media a little bit ago, for instance, but that really extends to a lot of different institutions. Um, and the ones that, that for a while were kind of holding things together were a couple local ones. You know, you had small business, um, you had uh, local elected officials in some cases, but mostly the, the two that were the highest were the police and the military, um, which is not really a great way to run a society, to be honest, when it's the people that are tasked with using force that hold the greatest level of faith in society. You know, they're supposed to be an arm of our policy, not the not sort of the, the policy end. Peter and Steve, is there, do, do either one of you, coming on the heels of what Steve just said, do either one of you have something else you want to say, or is that an appropriate spot to leave it? One thing that uh, that does give me some reason for optimism is that we that here in Massachusetts, things are perhaps different than what we've been describing. There's evidence that our legislative body, although we all like to knock it around on other podcasts, certainly functions better than um, <laughs> you know what we see at the national level. Um, and the relationship between the executive and legislative branches is certainly much better. Um, you know, we have actually managed to reduce cases very drastically here in Massachusetts, which is reason for uh, optimism and reason to, I think, to believe in that our, our uh, civic life is, is better functioning than, we, than what we see at the national level. So I think we should take a moment to pat ourselves in the back here in Massachusetts for a lot of the things that we've been able to do here. Um, but, but nationally, I think certainly still a lot of, a lot of reasons for, for pessimism. Steve Kazala, president of the MassInc polling group, thank you for taking the time to talk with me and Peter. Really enjoyed it. Thank you for having me. And that is going to do it for another installment of The Scrum. Big thanks to Steve Cazella, host of The Horse Race and president of the Mass Inc. polling group for joining us. And as always, thanks to you for taking the time to listen. Subscribe if you haven't already, rate us if you've got a minute, and talk back to us about what we're getting right and what we're missing. You can email us at scrum at wgbh.org or find us on Twitter. I'm at Riley Adam. Peter, you are? At Kadzis. And our producer, Zoe Matthews, is at Zoe S. Matthews. That's Matthews with one T. 
I'm Adam Riley. The Scrum is a production of WGBH News.